This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to developmental dysplasia of the hip, or DDH, which is one of the topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. The first question reads, The pavlic harness has been integral in the treatment of developmental dysplasia of the hip, or DDH. If the practitioner is not mindful of hip positioning, complications may occur. Which of the following correctly pairs hip positioning with its associated complication? And the choices are 1. Excessive flexion, which causes osteonecrosis, and excessive abduction, which causes femoral nerve palsy, 2. Excessive extension, which causes osteonecrosis, and excessive abduction, which causes obturator nerve palsy, 3. Excessive adduction, which causes osteonecrosis, and excessive extension, which causes sciatic nerve palsy, 4. Excessive flexion, which causes compartment syndrome, and excessive extension, which causes loss of pulses, and 5. Excessive flexion, which causes femoral nerve palsy, and excessive abduction, which causes osteonecrosis. The correct answer to this question is 5. Excessive flexion, which causes femoral nerve palsy, and excessive abduction, which causes osteonecrosis. So excessive hip flexion is associated with femoral nerve palsy, while excessive hip abduction is associated with osteonecrosis of the femoral head. To quickly review, the pavlic harness is a dynamic positioning device that allows the child to move freely within the confines of its restraints. It is composed of a circumferential chest strap with shoulder straps that allows sites of attachment for lower extremity straps. The anterior lower extremity straps flex the hips while the posterior lower extremity straps prevent adduction to the hips. Hip flexion should not exceed 90 degrees due to the risk of developing a femoral nerve palsy. Abduction of the hips should not exceed 70 degrees, which is associated with avascular necrosis due to impingement of the posterior superior retinacular branch of the medial femoral circumflex artery. Mernigan et al. performed a retrospective review of all patients who underwent pavlic harness treatment for DDH within a 17-year period. They identified 30 infants with femoral nerve palsy, an incidence of 2.5%. 87% of palsies presented within a week of harness application. It was also more likely in older, larger patients in whom dysplasia was of higher severity. They found that patients whose palsy resolved within three days had a 70% chance of treatment success, and those who had not recovered by 10 days had a 70% chance of treatment failure. Guile et al. reviewed DDH, and they report that indications for use of the harness include the presence of a reducible hip in an infant who has not made attempts to stand. The child's family must be able to follow instructions on its use. When radiographs of the hips and pelvis inflection and abduction indicate that the femoral neck axis and head are directed toward the triradiate cartilage, but the hip is not fully reduced, the pavlic harness may be used. They conclude that if the hips are not reduced within two to three weeks, other methods of treatment must be employed. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following represents inappropriate age-based treatment for a healthy female with developmental dysplasia of the hip who presents with a painless dislocation? And the choices are 1. 2 months of age and application of a pavlic harness. 2. 17 months of age, close reduction, orthogram with an 8mm medial dipole and spica casting. 3. 22 months of age, open reduction and spica casting. 4. 3.5 years of age, open reduction, varus proximal femoral osteotomy and spica casting, and 5. 5 months of age, and application of a rigid abduction brace. The correct answer to this question is 2. 17 months of age, close reduction, orthogram with an 8mm medial dipole, 
and spica casting. So at 17 months of age, a closed reduction under anesthesia is acceptable treatment. However, a dye pool of greater than 6 millimeters has been associated with high rates of treatment failure and osteonecrosis. To quickly review, the appropriate treatment of DDH is dependent upon patient age and degree of dysplasia. Children presenting with dysplasia prior to the age of 6 months are treated with continuous application of pavlic harness or alternatively, application of a rigid abduction brace in the event of pavlic failure. After 6 months of age, most authors recommend variations of closed and open reduction under anesthesia, followed by spica casting for maintenance of reduction. Intraoperative closed reduction is confirmed by arthrogram under dynamic fluoroscopy with measurement of medial dipole. A dipole measurement of 5 to 6 millimeters is suggestive of successful reduction. However, dipoles greater than 6 millimeters are predictive of failure. Vital et al. reviewed the treatment of DDH from 6 months to 4 years of age. They report that a concentric reduction can frequently be achieved with closed reduction under anesthesia, adductor tenotomy, and spica casting. They endorse arthrography under dynamic fluoroscopy as a method to confirm reduction and that a medial dipole of less than 5 to 7 millimeters has been demonstrated to improve outcomes. A dipole of greater than 7 millimeters is associated with an unacceptable outcome, including a 57% rate of osteonecrosis. Race et al. evaluated 59 children with congenital hip dislocations treated with closed reduction under anesthesia. Among patients with medial dipoles of greater than 7 millimeters, that is, an inadequate reduction, acceptable outcome occurred in only 22% of hips with an osteonecrosis rate of 57%. Those patients with reductions with less than 7 millimeters of a dipole had an osteonecrosis rate of 20%, and nearly all had restoration of the acetabular and lateral center edge angles. Murphy et al. performed an updated review on surgical treatment of hip dysplasia. They report that medial dipoles of less than 6 millimeters are consistent with a successful reduction. Moving on to the next question. A healthy 8-week-old infant with unilateral developmental dysplasia of the hip has been prescribed a full-time pavlic harness. At the 3-week follow-up, the left hip is positioned in the harness with 120 degrees of flexion and 30 degrees of abduction. No active knee extension is noted. Ultrasound imaging shows 50% femoral head coverage with an alpha angle of 52 degrees. What is the most likely reason for the patient's current presentation? And the choices are 1. Undiagnosed genetic syndrome. 2. Peripheral neuritis. 3. Failure to initiate treatment at the time of birth. 4. Poor compliance with treatment. And 5. Improper positioning of the pavlic harness. The correct answer to this question is 5. Improper positioning of the pavlic harness. So this patient has clinical symptoms consistent with the femoral nerve palsy likely relating to excessive flexion of the hip in the pavlic harness. The ultrasound findings demonstrate a reasonably seated femoral head with immature acetabular development, that is a normal head coverage of greater than 50% and an alpha angle of greater than 60 degrees. Positioning of the pavlic harness is critical for management of DDH. The correct hip position should be 90 to 100 degrees of flexion and 20 to 40 degrees of abduction. Excessive flexion should be avoided to reduce the incidence of femoral nerve palsy. Excessive abduction should be avoided as this can increase the incidence of hip avascular necrosis. Indications to discontinue a pavlic harness early include hips that do not reduce within 3-4 to four weeks as this can cause erosion of the posterosuperior acetabulum known as pavlic harness disease. Other indications to discontinue a pavlic harness early include femoral nerve palsy and systemic comorbidity, for example, early spinal-slash-thoracic-slash-cardiac surgery. 
Guile et al. reviewed developmental dysplasia of the hip from birth to six months. They state that the pavlic harness is contraindicated in patients with muscle imbalance like cerebral palsy or myelodysplasia, contractures like in the setting of arthrogryposis, and abnormal connective tissue laxity like in Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. X-rays are not indicated until four to five months of age as this is the average age for proximal femoral ossification. Mernigan et al. reviewed 30 babies with femoral nerve palsy from pavlic harness. 87% presented in the first week. These were more likely in larger babies with more severe DDH. They showed that femoral nerve palsy strongly predicts treatment failure. Moving on to the next question. An infant with an Ortolani-positive hip has been treated in a pavlic harness for three weeks, but his hip remains Ortolani-positive. Attempting the use of a semi-rigid abduction brace is associated with, and the choices are one, potential to achieve a stable hip without the need for surgical intervention, two, erosion of the posterolateral acetabulum, three, femoral nerve palsy, four, a higher risk of femoral head osteonecrosis than open reduction, and five, requiring general anesthesia in the operating room for application. The correct answer to this question is one, potential to achieve a stable hip without the need for surgical intervention. So trial of semi-rigid abduction bracing has been shown in some patients to achieve a reduced and stable hip in infants who have failed pavlic harness treatment. For an infant born with a dislocated but reducible or Ortolani positive hip, the first step is placement of a pavlic harness. The harness should be worn for 23 hours per day and the hip position is monitored with serial ultrasounds. If pavlic harness treatment has failed to achieve a reduced hip after three to four weeks, the next step is to place a semi-rigid abduction brace in effort to achieve reduction. If the semi-rigid abduction brace fails, then closed versus open reduction with spike cast in the operating room can be planned. Swaroop and Mubarak present a study using a protocol of initial pavlic harness treatment with weekly ultrasound assessment for three weeks. If the hip remained unstable but reducible, then semi-rigid abduction bracing with continued weekly ultrasounds were done for an additional two to three weeks. This treatment protocol had a 93% success rate, which compared favorably to protocols not including the abduction brace. Reduction was achieved with the pavlic harness alone in 39, or 87%, of the 44 hips. In the three hips requiring transition to a hip abduction brace, reduction was achieved in 2 or 67% of the cases. Guile et al. provide a review of the pathoanatomy, natural history, treatments, and outcomes of infants with developmental dysplasia of the hip. They describe using a pavlic harness as initial treatment, and if this fails, moving straight to a closed versus open reduction and spike casting. This review was written before several studies describing the use of semi-rigid abduction orthosis as an intermediate step that has since decreased the need for operative intervention. Moving on to the next question. You are asked to evaluate a two-week-old child referred from her pediatrician for an abnormal hip exam. You find her knees to be at different levels with the hip flexed to 90 degrees and adducted. The left hip makes a palpable clunk when moved from adduction to wide abduction. There are no other physical exam abnormalities. You order an ultrasound which confirms your diagnosis and you decide to place the child in a pavlic harness. What is the next step? And the choices are one, ultrasound in a pavlic immediately. 2. Full-time pavlic followed by ultrasound in pavlic in 7 to 10 days. 3. Nighttime pavlic followed by ultrasound in pavlic in 7 to 10 days. 4. Full-time pavlic followed by ultrasound out of the pavlic in 7 to 10 days. And 5. Nighttime pavlic followed by ultrasound out of the pavlic in 7 to 10 days. The correct answer to this question is 2. Full-time pavlic followed by ultrasound in the pavlic in 7 to 10 days.
So the patient has unilateral hip dysplasia with a dislocated but reducible or ortolani positive hip on one side. Initial treatment of choice is full-time pavlicarnus. The next ultrasound exam should occur in approximately one week in order to confirm maintenance of reduction. The pavlic harness is a dynamic reduction tool. It utilizes the infant's active muscle contraction to promote hip reduction by holding the hips in flexion and abduction. As such, some time in the pavlic is necessary before repeating an ultrasound exam to assess efficacy of the treatment. Mernigan et al. performed a retrospective review of 1,218 patients who underwent pavlic treatment for hip dysplasia and identified 30 cases of femoral nerve palsy, or in 2.5% of the cases. They found these palsies to be more likely to occur in older, larger patients with more severe dysplasia. This complication was predictive of failure of pavlic treatment, as patients with femoral nerve palsy had a 47% success rate with pavlic treatment compared to 94% in randomly selected controls. Swaroop et al. described two cohorts of Ortolani-positive patients treated for developmental dysplasia of the hip, or DDH, over two separate 10-year periods. The chronologically second cohort's treatment differed in the implementation of routine serial office-based ultrasonography in all patients and the use of a rigid abduction orthosis in patients whose hips remained unstable after three weeks of pavlic treatment. This resulted in an improvement in treatment success from 85% to 93%. Moving on to the next question. A four-week-old infant male is treated in a pavlic harness for developmental dysplasia of the hip. Hip flexion is set to 125 degrees at the initial visit. At his one-week follow-up appointment, ultrasound shows an alpha angle of 54 degrees and a beta angle of 60 degrees. On physical exam, the patient is unable to kick his right leg and holds his knee in a flex position. Which of the following is most likely responsible for these findings? And the choices are 1. Excessive hip abduction in a pavlic harness, 2. Septic hip, 3. Irreducible hip dislocation, 4. Sciatic nerve palsy present before the application of the harness, and 5. Excessive hip flexion in the pavlic harness. The correct answer to this question is 5. Excessive hip flexion in the pavlic harness. So the child has developed a femoral nerve palsy as a result of excessive hip flexion during pavlic harness bracing. Femoral nerve palsy following the application of a pavlic harness is a rare but important complication. Risk factors include maintaining the hip flexion beyond 120 degrees, heavier children, and a higher degree of dysplasia. Initial treatment options include adjustment of the pavlic harness and observation of quadriceps function over time, temporary cessation of the pavlic harness, or complete abandonment of the harness. Little data is available to compare the effectiveness of these strategies. Weinstein et al. reviewed the treatment of developmental dysplasia of the hip, and they mentioned several complications of pavlic harness treatment, including inferior dislocation, femoral nerve palsy, avascular necrosis, and failure due to patient-slash-family noncompliance. Moving on to the next question. A one-week-old infant was placed in a pavlic harness for an Ortolani-positive hip. She was seen on a weekly basis, and her hip remained dislocated three weeks later. What is the most appropriate treatment? And the choices are 1. Continue the pavlic harness, 2. Switch to an abduction orthosis, 3. Plan for closed reduction of the hip, and 4. Schedule for open reduction. The correct answer to this question is 2. Switch to an abduction orthosis. So two series have documented successful hip reduction with rigid abduction orthoses after the failure of pavlic harness treatment. If a dislocated hip has not stabilized with three weeks of pavlic treatment, prolonging treatments can lead to pavlic disease or erosion of the posterior margin of the acetabulum. 
closed or open reduction should be deferred in favor of a trial of abduction bracing. Moving on to the next question. Physical examination of a six-week-old infant revealed a positive left Galeazzi sign. With hip abduction to 80 degrees, there was a palpable clunk on the left, but none on the right. Ultrasound imaging showed a right hip alpha angle of 60 degrees with 50% coverage of the femoral head. The left hip alpha angle was 40 degrees with 10% coverage of the femoral head. What is the most appropriate treatment for this problem? And the choices are 1. Full-time placement of a pavlic harness with follow-up in one week. 2. Full-time placement of a pavlic harness with follow-up examination and ultrasound in three months. 3. Observation with follow-up at age six months with hip radiographs and four, double diapering with follow-up examination and ultrasound in one month. The correct answer to this question is one, full-time placement of a pavlic harness with follow-up in one week. So this infant has a developmentally dislocated hip that is reducible or ortolani positive with an abnormal ultrasound. At age six weeks, this should be treated with a full-time pavlic harness. Observation is likely to lead to a rigidly dislocated hip not amenable to bracing. Double diapering has no treatment effect in true developmental hip dysplasia slash dislocation. Infants with unstable hips need to be checked every one to two weeks until the hip is stable. Follow-up in three months is not appropriate for an unstable hip. Moving on to the next question. A six-week-old infant, a six-week-old female infant is referred to your practice for concerns of developmental dysplasia of the hip. On physical exam, you note a positive Ortolani test on the left side. Pavlic harness treatment is initiated. Which of the following imaging modalities should be utilized at the two-week follow-up visit? And the choices are 1. Magnetic resonance imaging, 2. Computed tomography, 3. Ultrasound, 4. Plane radiographs, and 5. Arthrogram and dynamic fluoroscopy. The correct answer to this question is 3. Ultrasound. So initial ultrasound is performed to confirm reduction of the hip in question, generally after one or two weeks, followed by repeat ultrasound six weeks later. Ultrasound is necessary to avoid leaving an infant in a harness with an unreduced hip, which can erode the acetabulum. Weinstein et al. provide a thorough overview of the presentation, evaluation, and treatment of DDH. The use of office-based ultrasound has helped to confirm hip reduction and proper acetabular development in children being treated with pavlic harness. Moving on to the next question. An otherwise healthy four-week-old girl is noted on examination of the left hip to have a positive Ortolani and Barlow test. She is placed in a pavlic harness and returns for interval adjustments. At three weeks, she returns for a harness check and an ultrasound reveals a persistent hip dislocation. What is the next most appropriate step in management? And the choices are one, adjustment of the harness to maintain 80 degrees of abduction, two, removal of the harness to avoid creating further deformity of the acetabulum, through removal of the harness and acceptance of the hip position without further treatment, four, surgical open reduction of the hip within two weeks, and five, continued use of the harness and recheck in two to three weeks. The correct answer to this question is two, removal of the harness to avoid creating further deformity of the acetabulum. So the patient has failed to respond to pavlic harness treatment. If use of the pavlic harness fails to maintain reduction at two weeks, Use of the harness should be discontinued to avoid creating further deformity of the acetabulum. Alternative treatments considered later include bracing, closed reduction, and spica casting, or open reduction and spica casting. With the pavlic harness, continued abduction and hip flexion of the displaced hip may lead to posterolateral acetabular dysplasia. Moving on to the next question. 
which of the following concepts regarding pediatric hips is true? And the choices are 1. The proximal femoral physis and greater trochanteric apophysis develop from different cartilaginous physis. 2. The proximal femoral physis grows at a rate of 9 mm per year. 3. Normal infant femoral antiversion is between 10 to 20 degrees. 4. The ossific nucleus of the proximal femur is visible on radiographs by 6 months of age in most children. And 5. Slipped capital femoral epiphysis or skiffy typically occurs through the zone of proliferation. The correct answer to this question is 4. The ossific nucleus of the proximal femur is visible on radiographs by 6 months of age in most children. So the proximal femoral physis and greater trochanteric apophysis develop from the same cartilage physis in the infant which undergoes apoptotic division in the child. The distal femoral physis, not proximal, grows at a rate of 9 mm per year. The normal infant femoral antiversion is between 30 to 40 degrees. The normal infant femoral antiversion is between 30 to 40 degrees. Skiffy typically occurs through the zone of hypertrophy, not the zone of proliferation. Weintraub and Gill reviewed the use of ultrasonography in the diagnosis and prognosis of developmental dysplasia of the hip. They recommend detection with ultrasound because of the delayed femoral head ossification that is approximately 5 months and discuss the cost-effectiveness of routine screening of all newborns. Moving on to the next question. Failure to achieve reduction of a dislocated hip in an otherwise healthy 4-month-old infant which did not reduce after 3 weeks in a pavlic harness and 3 weeks in an abduction brace is best treated with which of the following? And the choices are 1. Adjusting the harness to 75 degrees of abduction and maintaining 90 degrees of hip flexion. 2. Adjusting the harness to 75 degrees of abduction and increasing hip flexion to 120 degrees. 3. Close reduction with hip arthrogram, adductor tenotomy if necessary, and hip spike casting. 4. Open reduction and femoral shortening osteotomy. And 5. Open reduction, femoral shortening osteotomy, and pelvic acetabular osteotomy. The correct answer to this question is 3. Close reduction with hip arthrogram, adductor tenotomy if necessary, and hip spike casting. So a four-month-old who fails pavlic harness treatment is best treated with closed versus open reduction of the hip and spica casting. Continued harness treatments can be detrimental as there is risk of posterior acetabular erosion. Osteotomies are not necessary to achieve reduction in a patient of this age cohort. Mubarak et al. reports 12 failures in 18 infants with hip dislocations due to improper physician technique and or inappropriate harness. Failure to recognize inadequate reduction portends worse clinical outcomes. Another option for failed pavlic harness treatment in infants is a hip abduction brace. Headquist reports on 13 of 15 patients who failed pavlic harness treatment and went on to a resolved DDH with an abduction brace, avoiding the operating room and anesthesia for a closed reduction and spike casting. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following radiographic images is best for detecting anterior acetabular deficiency in the dysplastic hip? And the choices are 1. Pelvic inlet, 2. Jude, 3. AP pelvis, 4. False profile, and 5. Frog lateral. The correct answer to this question is 4. False profile. So the false profile view is obtained with the patient standing with the affected hip on the cassette the ipsilateral foot parallel to the cassette, and the pelvis rotated 65 degrees from the plane of the cassette. This view best assesses anterior coverage of the femoral head. Moving on to the next question. In patients older than 12 months of age with developmental dysplasia of the hip, all of the following physical exam findings are likely present except, and the choices are 1. Limited hip abduction, 2. Positive ortolani maneuver, 
three abnormal leg lengths on Galeazzi testing, four Trendelenburg gait, and five pelvic obliquity. The correct answer to this question is two, positive Orlani maneuver. So there are many exam maneuvers which are used in the diagnosis of developmental dysplasia of the hip. Exam findings differ based on the age of the patient. Vital et al. emphasized that physical exam findings associated with DDH in a child older than 12 months can be different than those seen in the newborn. Specifically, limited hip abduction, a positive Galeazzi test, a positive Trendelenburg gait, and asymmetry of hip abduction are all useful exam tests that are likely to be positive. The Barlow and Orlani maneuvers are of limited use in older children, defined as greater than 6 months, because the soft tissues about the hip tighten. Moving on to the next question. A newborn girl is referred for evaluation of suspected hip instability. What information from her history would place her in the highest risk category? And the choices are 1. History of maternal diabetes mellitus. 2. Frank breach presentation. 3. Female gender. 4. Concomitant metatarsis adductus. And 5. Twin gestation. The correct answer to this question is 2. Frank breach presentation. So breach positioning has been noted as the risk factor that most increases the relative risk of developmental dysplasia of the hip in multiple series and meta-analysis. All the other factors also increase the risk, but to a lesser magnitude. Moving on to the next question, what acetabular procedure for developmental dysplasia of the hip does not require a concentric reduction of the femoral head in the acetabulum? And the choices are one, Salter inominate osteotomy, 2. Pemberton inanimate osteotomy, 3. Degas inanimate osteotomy, 4. Triple inanimate osteotomy, and 5. Staheli shelf procedure. Correct answer to this question is 5. Staheli shelf procedure. So all of the reorientation inanimate osteotomies require a concentric reduction of the hip. The Staheli shelf procedure may be performed even with the hip subluxated, but it is a salvage procedure that covers a portion of the femoral head with capsular fibrocartilage rather than hyaline cartilage. Moving on to the next question. In infants with developmental dysplasia of the hip, anatomic close reduction may be prevented by all of the following anatomic structures except, and the choices are 1, interposition of gluteus medius, 2, limbus formed by fibrous tissue and hyaline cartilage, 3. Ligamentum teres and prominent fibrofatty pulvinar tissue, 4. Contracted transverse acetabular ligament, and 5. Inverted acetabular labrum. The correct answer to this question is 1. Interposition of gluteus medius. So interposition of gluteus medius is not associated with blocked reduction in patients with DDH. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, Answer 2, limbus formed by fibrous tissue and hyaline cartilage is incorrect, as fibrous tissue can merge with the hyaline cartilage of the acetabulum rim, forming the limbus, which may then prevent concentric reduction of the hip. Answer 3, ligamentum teres and prominent fibrofatty pulvinar tissue is incorrect, as the ligamentum teres and fibrofatty tissue, known as the pulvinar, may be found within the depths of the acetabulum and can also be an obstacle to reduction. Answer 4, contracted transverse acetabular ligament is incorrect as the transverse acetabular ligament at the caudal aspect of the acetabulum contracts in patients with persistent hip dislocation and is a block to a concentric reduction of the hip. And finally, answer 5, inverted acetabular labrum is incorrect as in the older infant with DDH, 
the acetabular labrum may be inverted and may mechanically block concentric reduction of the hip. In addition, with long-standing dislocation, the stretched hip capsule becomes constricted by the contracted iliopsoas tendon to assume an hourglass configuration that prevents reduction. And moving on to the final question, a five-year-old boy with cerebral palsy presents to the clinic with a dislocated right hip. What quadrant of the acetabulum is most likely deficient? And the choices are one, anterior inferior, two, anterior superior, three, posterior superior, four, posterior inferior, and five, anterior inferior and anterior superior. The correct answer to this question is three, posterior superior. So in patients with cerebral palsy, the hip is normal at birth, but a combination of muscle imbalance and bony deformity leads to progressive hip dysplasia. The review article by Flynn notes that spasticity or contracture usually involves the adductor and iliopsoas muscles. Because of the pull of these muscles, the majority of hips subluxate in the posterior superior direction. Because physical examination is unreliable, an AP of the pelvis is required for diagnosis. That's all for this question review session about developmental dysplasia of the hip. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.